0: Well, that is our hope here this morning, that uh, you would just be uh, encouraged and reawakened in Christ, and I just want to extend a warm welcome to you here this morning. This is your first time at Windsor Road. My name is Randy, and I'm the lead minister here at the church, and it really is a delight to uh, spend the first day of the week uh, worshiping, and worshiping with uh, the church family, uh, people uh, that I love and uh, that we are going to be spending what we're doing now, and uh, our lives will be spent... For all eternity together. So this is, I hope, a taste of heaven. So when we come together in worship, do you ever think about really why why we're here and what this is about? I mean, on the one hand, we can say that we're here because we're Americans, and we have the right to do that, right? And um, I've been in Oklahoma, so... (laughs) Sarah can tell. Sarah can tell when I've been with my family. You've been talking to your family, haven't you? I can tell. It's like a light switch. So anyway, pardon me. Or not. I don't know. (laughs) Um, But, you know, on the one hand, we're here because of the blessings of of our American way of life. And that we can worship or not. It's part of a life in America. And so we have the freedom to attend. Uh, The worship space, the church of our choice, and if we want formal, great. Liturgical, great. Contemporary readings, prayers, sermons, uh, types of preaching. I mean, we're kind of exercising our right to choose. So in a way, when we gather here, that's sort of what we're affirming. And uh, that's good. And we really need to go deeper than that. And what I'm getting at is this. To gather as a community in Christ, in worship, in group, is to affirm what's really real. It's to affirm ultimate reality. We gather here because we believe that this book gives us The answers to life's most important questions. Like, how did we get here? Uh, Why is this world broken? What's the fix? What's our destiny? Those are big worldview questions. And when we gather here in worship, our worship affirms... uh, A worldview that says, no, this is capital R reality. Capital R reality. God created this world. Our selfishness broke this world. God in love is restoring the brokenness of this world in Christ and his spirit upon his people on mission. And when people die, they don't just cease to exist. There is this life which gives birth to another life, a truer life. An ultimate reality lies not in the halls of government or the ticker tape of Wall Street or the trophies of athletics or academia. Ultimate reality is in God. Christ is risen. Our citizenship is in heaven. And from there, we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will one day transform these broken bodies into the likeness of his glorious body by the power that enables him to subject all things unto himself, Christ be the glory. Now, that's why we're here. We're here to affirm ultimate Reality and that worldview changes everything, everything, including, including our understanding of today's topic. Take your Bibles if you would and turn to the Old Testament book of Exodus, Exodus chapter thirty-one. You'll find that on page 71 of your church Bibles. And we've been on a journey through the book of Exodus where we've learned that God rescued his people Israel from slavery. And he elected them to be his chosen nation. God had blessed Israel according to his promise to Abraham so that Israel would be a blessing to the nations. So ultimately, Israel was to be a channel through which God's blessings would flow to the entire world, every tribe and tongue and nation and language. And in Exodus 31, God, having rescued his people from Egypt and having given his people the, the the gift of his law, his will on Sinai with the Ten Commandments. Now here in Exodus 31, God commands Israel to build a sacred space called the tabernacle, and all of its furnishings, physical objects that will house his presence among his people. And in Exodus 31, 1 through 6, which is what I'll read here, God calls a community of artists to produce this sacred space. And by commissioning this, and by commissioning them, God affirms his love for the arts, for the arts. And that's where we're going today, the Bible and the arts. Exodus 31, 1 through 6, the Lord said to Moses, See, I have called by name Bezalel, the son of Uri, the son of Hur, of the tribe of Judah, and I have filled him with the Spirit of God. With ability and intelligence, with knowledge and all craftsmanship, to devise artistic designs, to work in gold, silver, and bronze, in cutting stones for setting, and in carving wood to work in every craft. And behold, I have appointed with him Aholiab, the son of ahisamach of the tribe of Dan. And I have given to all able men ability that they may make all that I have commanded you. So, in these verses, God gifts Bezalel and he enables his assistant, Oholiab, and all capable, the Spirit enabled them to oversee and participate in the construction of the tabernacle, which itself is a work of art. We've talked about the meaning of the furnishings of. The tabernacle and the artistic designs there, but the entire tabernacle itself was this, this amazing work of art. And so in these verses, we really get an, an understanding of what is in God's mind when we think about art and the arts. And I'm not just talking about uh, uh, paintings, but I'm talking about all kinds of, of arts and music and Sculptor. These verses teach an often overlooked truth about the Bible and the arts. So here's where we're going today. First, I want us to just talk about why, you know, why art matters, why this matters, the significance of it. And then I want us to take a look at these verses and see about see how these verses affirm the arts and what we learn about what's in God's heart when we consider these verses about the arts. And then we'll see how the arts encourage us to appreciate and convey truth. And you may be thinking in your mind, well, I'm no artist. Why? Well, I want to help correct that by the end of our time here together. So if this Okie is an artist, you can be too, all right? So let's go to first, you know, why art matters, the significance of this. And, and, and I just want to get to this right Quickly, because my fear when I, you know, when I'm thinking about this message, my fear is that someone has already changed channels. Okay, I'll just see what's going on in the PGA. He'll he'll think I'm looking at my Bible. You know, the, just the idea. What? You know, who, who really cares about art and and and? Really, is this that important? And, and so let me just stop there. Okay, let me just ask, let, let's, let's, let's not get defensive. Let's get curious. Now, why would people think that? Why would people think that? Let, let me let me suggest a reason why people would think that. Let's look at this chart here. It's a very important chart. That's not that chart. <laughs> well, we're going to get to that chart. Do we have the, th- this chart here? Thank you. Yeah. I made a mistake, didn't I? Yes, on my notes. I apologize. This is a really important um, image for us to, to get, because this is our culture today. This is our culture today. Our culture has an upper story, lower story, upstairs, downstairs view of just, you know, your life. The world asserts a radical split between two different worlds the the private world and the public world. And so in the public world, which is downstairs, we have society's great institutions, the state and academia and multinational corporations and mainstream media and the like and and then in the private sphere, that's upstairs, we have, you know, family, church and personal relationships and we're told, we're told by our culture that the the public sphere, that's what's scientific and objective, and then and then meanwhile the private sphere upstairs, that's th- those are subjective, that that's based on personal values and personal preferences, and so and so you know you're allowed to have them, you're allowed to have an upstairs, but it's not as important as downstairs that's that's the very not so implicit message here well g- well, given that, g- guess where people put art see and and let me just say this further, given that, guess where people put matters of faith. so this needs to be in our minds, especially when we are um, really trying to share our faith, because if we wonder if there's a you know why does this seem to be be so difficult to get the message across, and it could very well be that the person that we're trying to share our faith with holds this mental map, and the mental map actually needs to be addressed first, see, that needs to be deconstructed, all right, and And I wanted to introduce to you a theologian to help us deconstruct that. It's the overlooked theologian Miranda Priestley from The Devil Wears Prada. I think now we're ready to see that video. Okay. This is not how would you like her to be your pastor? (laughs) Wow. But she has a point. Art is inescapable. It it does have to do with us. Did your company have a logo? Uh, How about a style manual? How about a website? Where'd that come from? Well, Well, let's just, Let's talk about the look of your living room. Well, you know, why are you enamored with shiplap and subway tile? And and what about your clothing style? See, those are artistic decisions. And furthermore, God filled your Bible with art. Poetry, and song, and lyrics, and prose, and narrative, and proverbs, and parables art is inescapable. So the question is not uh, if you are an artist, but what kind and will such art be? Cheesy, tacky, or full of excellence, beauty, goodness, and truth? And when gifted believers abandon their artistic calling, they pass up a powerful opportunity to elevate the glory of God. So so art is an invitation and an elevation. Art is an invitation to an elevation of awe. Art invites us into God's elevated world so that we can live in awe of his glory. I'm thinking of C.S. Lewis's wardrobe in... The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe of the Chronicles of Narnia. At, you know, at first you, you get in that wardrobe and you feel those warm woolly coats, and you keep pushing through, and you and then you feel the you know the the stabbing, sticking of the bushes and the branches of another world. Art, as God intends, art as God intends, will draw me into His world. Art matters because art helps locate my life in the story of God. And that takes us to these verses here in Exodus 31. Let's cover three observations in Exodus 31, 1 through 6. First, I want you to notice that God recognizes a community of artists in Israel Bezalel, Oholiab, a society of artists in verse 6, you see. And note the words, craftsmanship and artistic designs and skilled workers. Isn't that interesting? Israel had just escaped from 400 years of slavery, performing manual labor for Pharaoh's glory. Who has time to create art while living in slavery? And yet here we find a community of artists Among former slaves. See, art will find a way. The second observation is this God calls these artists by name. That's important. And he equips them with his spirit. So that he calls them by name means there's no one else I want to do this task or to oversee this task except for this one. It's a commission. So, God knows the artists that He wants. He knows their abilities and their hearts, and He fills them with His Spirit. Now, let's pause there for just a minute because I want to make sure we're clear on what that means. In the New Testament, when we read the phrase, be filled with the Spirit, well, that means to, to live in cooperation with Jesus' leadership. Be filled with the Spirit in the New Testament means be led by this, be led by Jesus. In Exodus 31, it's it's a different meaning. It just is. God fills with the Spirit means He gives the ability to do what commissions. Uh, he gives the ability to do what He wants done. So He supplies what He commissions. And their names reflect this. Bezalel. Bezalel means. In the shadow of God. And oholiab means my tent is the Father God. Hmm. So their commission is by God, who is their patron, who supplies the resources for the work. And their work involving the tabernacle and all of the furniture was intended to show ultimate reality. And what is that ultimate reality? Ultimate reality is that God is our shelter. God is the, our shelter. <laughs> Israel surrounds the tabernacle. There's no moat around Israel, <laughs> just Israel surrounding the tabernacle, and that, that's their protection. And there is no safer place for Israel to be than near the presence of God. And let me just say this. This world, listen to me, I believe this, because because it's based on ultimate reality. This world is a perfectly safe place to be as long as you're in the kingdom of God. Well, the third observation is this. God calls the artists in Israel to make all kinds of art. Um, If there was one book that I would recommend to you that has been helpful to me this past week in the study, uh, Francis Schaeffer's Bible and Art. Bible and Art. Uh, It's two essays. It's a wonderful read. And in his book, Francis Schaeffer says that concerning the tabernacle and the furnishings, they include nearly every form of representational art. And by representational art, I mean this. This represents that. This symbolizes that. So, as art, the tabernacle and all of its furnishings represent the very presence of God. And, and so, if you were to turn back uh, to Exodus 25 to 30, and you would read, All of the different beautiful materials, 14 beautiful materials, gold, silver, bronze, onyx stones, acacia wood, uh, woven garments of purple and blue and scarlet, fine linen, goat hair, oils, fragrant incense, and more. This is expensive stuff here. Where else in Scripture do we see such a catalog of uh, precious metals and stones? Where else? Genesis 1 and 2. Genesis 1 and 2. The creation account. So there are echoes of Eden here. This is The tabernacle is to be a, a, a replica of Eden. And, oh, there's all sorts of beautiful precious metals and stones in, in Eden, and I love this verse. Here's your memory verse for the week. It's Genesis two twelve, and the gold of that land is good. <laughs> Memorize that. And the gold. Why would there need to be gold in Eden? Because God likes it. It's pretty. And what's this tell us about God? That that God, God gives. His space is a space of of truth and goodness and beauty. And and yet if God had wanted to, he could have created a, a pragmatic utilitarian space. He would not have had to use these materials. Iron is more practical than gold. Dyed and decorated wool, more expensive. Difficult to obtain. If God wanted to, he could have easily have spoken a monochrome cosmos Uh, into being he could have made an all gray universe gray planets gray animals gray on gray rainbows and a gray sky he could even call oranges gray you know what that would have looked like this past winter that's what it would have looked like right (laughs) and this gray topia uh, could, could have been perfectly efficient and functional and from an engineering perspective but he didn't, did he? He created the color spectrum. He, he made strawberries red. And orange is orange. And lemon's yellow. And mandarin fish. And peacocks and chameleons. And he brushed our skin tones and complexions. And you know why? You know why? Genesis 1 tells us seven times. God saw that it was good. And good means more than morally good or functionally good. It means beautifully good, aesthetically good, pleasing to God's eyes. And so the tabernacle is this diversity of colors and materials and textures and embroidery and wood carving and metalworking and stone cutting and it's a sacred space of sacred space of symmetry and proportion and order. And so what does that tell us about the role of art in elevating our hearts to God? It's that art is not Art is never meant to be an object of worship, but an aid to worship. And here we must acknowledge the temptation that every artist faces, and it's this, to allow artistic activity to drift toward individualism and about what the artist wants, which which drifts to self-glory. See, (laughs) self-expression without God leads to self-glory. And that's art gone awry. And that looks like Exodus 32 with the golden calf. So it's really strategic that Exodus 31 gives us God's perspective about what art is to be. And then Exodus 32 gives us the perversion of that in the golden calf. But a biblical view of art gives us a portal into God's world. Let me give you some examples of this quickly. Um, this is a painting in the uh, late 1900s. It's called the Annunciation. So it's, it's the angel Gabriel uh, announcing to Mary that she's with child through the Holy Spirit. Notice Mary is sitting in crumbled bedclothes, and she's clothed as a poor peasant woman. Just look at that. Just look at that for just a moment, and study that. And her surroundings are ordinary; they're unremarkable. The angel appears not as a winged messenger, but as bright golden burst of light, radiating a warm and glowing presence. And the artist. Uh, Henry Tanner wants to show Mary as, well, you know, a bit frightened and uncertain, of course, but also Tanner captures the moment when her fear gives way to contemplation and acceptance. Her head is bowed and tilted upward. She's receptive. She's open to God's call. And the entire painting, when you look at it, helps you realize that often God's extraordinary word comes to the most ordinary people, the Annunciation. Here's another painting. This painting is by Amy Sherald. um, And the title of this painting is, What's Different About Alice is That She Has the Most Incisive Way of Telling the Truth. (laughs) That's what it's titled. Here it is. So, um, Amy Sherald paints a woman gazing contemplatively at the viewer. Okay? She's dark-skinned. Her flesh is rendered in shades of black and gray as if lifted, as if lifted from a vintage photograph. And, and the clear, bright colors locate her in our world, but her grayscale skin suggests she also stakes her claim to history, an abusive past. She's beautifully clothed and self possessed. She holds the camera in front of her chest. One hand twists the lens as if focusing it. So she doesn't exist as an object. Rather, she silently asserts her agency as she points her camera to us. She has the power to look, she has the power to create. And though visually quiet, this painting does a a radical work at restoring black female dignity. Now, Amy Sherald is not a Christian. But she taps into a fundamental truth evident to all people. And that is that there is a dignity to human life. The, The image of God rests in this painting. That's the message. Beautiful. Uh, One more Michelangelo's David. It's 14 feet high. This is David's look. The setting of this is David before he faces Goliath. And his gaze is focused. He has a slingshot uh, over his shoulder that's almost invisible. Suggesting that his victory is going to be one of uh, cleverness, not sheer force, he conveys confidence and concentration, and then the sculpture shows a profound knowledge of the male anatomy, and just just, that 's the detail. Look at those veins it 's masterful. but here 's the sermon that was created from a discarded piece of marble had been sitting out in the elements for four decades. Two other artists had already turned the project down. A 26-year-old Michelangelo redeemed broken marble into a masterpiece. There's a sermon there, right? See? And that takes me to our third point here about the power of art to convey truth. So so we need art to understand truth. Um, I'm thinking of a missionary, John G. Patton, who was missionary to the New Hebrides uh, in the 19th century. It's it's now uh, Vanuatu is the name of the current region. John G. Patton uh, conducted pioneering mission work. It was highly dangerous. In fact, when... He notified his congregation that he was going. He and his wife were criticized because of the risk. And in fact, one church member, a man by the name of Dixon, just outright said to John Patton, they're cannibals. They will eat you. And John Patton looked at him and basically said, I'm not afraid to die. But that's not how he said it. This is how he said it. He said, Mr. Dixon, You are advanced in years now, and your own prospect is soon to be laid in the grave there to be eaten by worms. I confess to you that if I can but live and die serving and honoring the Lord Jesus, it will make no difference to me whether I am eaten by cannibals or by worms. (laughs) Now, that's art telling the truth, see? So, So, artistic expression of truth allows you to hear the truth and see the truth and taste it and touch it and smell it. Art kind of gets behind enemy lines. And so it ambushes you with, with truth, with truth, with truth, my goodness. So the best art never sacrifices quality for message. The best art never sacrifices quality for message. So... You know, some of these that I've showed you are explicitly faith-related, or or, or they're all faith-related, but they may not be explicitly, you know, Christian. That is to say, to be Christian, art need not wear a Bible verse name tag. It can simply be beautiful or excellent or troubling. The Holy Spirit can use art to bring comfort or discomfort to help us understand the kingdom. And the best art never compromises theology for for beauty or aesthetics. Any decent artist will find a way to be expressive within the boundaries of biblical truth. Just as composers of fugues express themselves within the limits of their form. There's no reason to be heretical or obscene or immoral or even cheesy just to be new. Dante and Bach managed the balance, so should we. Uh, Here is a a, a great story. In 2015, there was an interview. The Hungarian composer Jürgen Gürtsev made a remarkable confession about his struggle to reconcile his atheism with the beauty of Bach's music. And this is what he said. This This is beautiful. He said, consciously I'm an atheist, but I don't say it out loud. Because if I look at Bach, I cannot be an atheist. I have to accept the way he believed. And then he said this his music never stops praying. That's powerful. He said, my brain rejects it all, but my brain isn't worth much. (laughs) Now, let me reiterate what I said a few moments ago. You may not call to be, you know, an artist like these works, But your life is to be a work of art. As God's image bearers, we are called to be artists and gardeners after his image. And God calls us to bring beauty to life, goodness to life, truth to life. And that involves everything, everything. The way we we make omelets, the way we wear outfits, the way we preach sermons, build bridges. Make cars, movies, stories, blog posts, tweets, paintings, PowerPoint presentations, photos, research papers, movie reviews, surgeries, furniture, lands- landscapes, the way you mow your yard. That's why I crisscross. <laughs> no, I crisscross. Because it looks better that way. Huh? We create with truth and goodness and beauty in mind. Why? Because Philippians 2.15 says that we are to shine like we who are a city on a hill cannot be hid. And God calls us to shine like stars at night.